the critic and essayist Lionel Trilling um, had a a particular beef with jargonised discourse of superficialities masquerading as things of significance, or as he put it, irritable mental gestures that resemble ideas, uh, gestures that might resemble ideas but actually could prevent them. Architect and author Rainier de Graaf may be, may be a fellow traveller. Uh, de Graaf is a partner in the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, OMA, and his latest book is Architect, Verb, The New Language of Building. It's something of a, a witty excoriation of a practice that, well, it may in some ways have lost its way. Uh, he joins us now to discuss. Rainier, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, that verb to architect, but what what do you mean by this this shift in part of speech? Well, I mean the title is an illustration of a larger phenomenon, but I thought there was a, a, a wonderful absurdity to it. Architect is, of course, a noun. Um, it is a person who who designs buildings. It's, it's fairly obvious, but I mean it's increasingly being used as a verb in the digital world to architect, and that has made its way into the you know the ancient profession of architecture itself, uh, causing all sorts of confusion and like like many other words. And I, I thought you know it was just a wonderful illustration of the larger phenomenon of let's say bullshitting. I guess I'm, I'm trying to address <laughs> in the book. Well, I wonder. How, I mean, how much is is modern architecture burdened by? Among other things, it will come to them, but but burdened by hollowed out language, and I wonder what project that that hollowed out language serves. Well, I mean, I've written a book about it, so in my view, obviously, <laughs> very very much, you know, in my view, the whole architectural profession is really really suffering from this language because it is essentially language invented by consultants nor by architects, but in, it's increasingly being co-opted by architects. And I think the surreptitious quality of that language is that in a very subtle way, it tries to tell architects what to do. It tries architects to what criteria to conform without, um, let's say, openly discussing the values of those criteria themselves. So, you know, we go from a situation in, in the 90s and early zeros where architects tell the world very proudly what they're doing to architects being told exactly what to do. And I don't think that's necessarily good for the profession. Can we walk through a few words? Um, sustainability. Yeah. Tell me about that in this in this context. Well, that is in, in some ways the most harmless word because, I mean, I don't think uh, any architect or any other person would necessarily want to be unsustainable, but, but it's a word that is used so much that actually using the word makes us think we are saying we are sustainable, makes us think we are being sustainable. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of hot air in there. You know, there's every mission statement of every firm extensively lists how sustainable they are when they're not necessarily very sustainability is actually something you do. Uh, as is the case with most of these words. And I think we're, we're seeing a situation, we're talking about it, is, is increasingly taking the place of action. You know, and I'm, I'm of course, all for prudent use of resources. Uh, I'm all for, uh, you know, an architecture that is not wasteful, polluting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
but it's in a way an obvious cause. And the more we argue the cause, I think the more suspicious things become. Here's another one then. I think it's a, it's a related concept, livability. Yeah, livability. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a far more vague concept, you know, <laughs> um, invented, in, invented by the economist Mercer and what have you. Um, to evaluate cities essentially to determine expat wages, which tells you exactly how burdened that term is with uh, with ulterior motives. I mean, most livable cities are rich cities, desirable cities, but not necessarily livable cities. I mean, if you take a look at Vancouver, you know, that's topped the livability uh, index for more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. That made its real estate so desirable that prices went up so that, that normal people can no longer afford to live in supposedly the most livable city in the world. And then a city is most livable when nobody lives there. I mean, that's very tragic in some ways. Does that make it, here's another another expression, a world-class city? That's very, very similar. I mean, I couldn't, I mean, many of the terms in the book, I mean, particularly world-class, I guess, but many terms in the book, I would not ever be able to use without full irony. Nevertheless, most of these terms are, are used in a deadly serious way. That, that's a very good test, world, I think. World class, <laughs> yes. yeah. <laughs> well, here's one, though, that I think that, that may not apply. And a final word, uh, beauty. And that, that in the book takes you to, to Roger Scruton. Could you... <laughs> right. Could you walk us through there? It's a story that ends in the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission uh, and, and Scruton's well, notions on this, this invocation of beauty. Right. Well, as an architect, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not against beauty. I mean, I, I guess we all pursue beauty in, in, in some way. Uh, but, I mean, the objectionable thing here is that, that beauty comes in combination with a, with a number of prescriptions as to what is beautiful and, and what isn't. I mean, beauty is, of course, the building better, building beautiful is an official policy document of, of the, you know, the UK conservative government. And, and I think it's not hard to imagine what kind of architecture they have in mind when they issue policy documents like it. And, and I, uh, ironically, you know, uh, they are part of a very, very good tradition of, you know, Stalinist realism or, or you know, the Nazi pursuit of, uh, of what they call deranged art. I mean, in that sense, the British government finds itself an excellent company. And it's the case with many of these terms. They come, they're essentially vague, but they come in combination with elaborate prescriptions, elaborate uh, measurement systems, when actually, of course, livability, well-being, happiness, and what have you, are essentially unmeasurable quantities. And, and by making them measurable, by saying exactly what is beautiful and what isn't, then you know the oppressive nature of that language becomes fully clear, in my view. I mean, beauty is is clearly a thing. Well, that would resist that sort of quantification, but as you say, there are all sorts of, of, of systems of criteria and score. I mean, can you give us some more examples of that and, 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 and where they operate and how they operate perhaps to, to limit the finer impulses of a, of a profession like architecture? Well, the original, and I had a, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is The New Language of Building. And that wasn't the subtitle I had in mind. 
but I have a partly American publisher, so they don't necessarily do irony. Oh, what was yours? Um, but uh, <laughs> mine was uh, the ultimate guide to world-class, award-winning, uh, <laughs> creative, sustainable, uh, and beautiful buildings that foster a sense of place and well-being. Oh, very good. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then when you use all of those all of those words in one sentence, I think the absurdity becomes very, very manifest. If I ever get you to sign a copy, I'll want that inscribed. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but but back to those 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 systems. I mean, there are there are a proliferation of these. Yeah, uh, there is. I mean, the end of the book has a dictionary. You know, with a, with a far longer list. I think we're about three hundred terms which are all similar and all like this and, you know, and, and, and have a similar, you know, authority in, in the world and, and a similar kind of meaninglessness. I mean, my favorite one is, uh, and my favorite chapter of the book is the chapter dedicated to placemaking. <laughs> um, and the title, the title of that particular chapter is here nor there. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, placemaking is a term we, or at least I, in when designing cities or part of cities that you increasingly come across in briefs, um, you know, as, as a desirable thing. And so that chapter is dedicated to me trying to find out what the word is. Now, it's not in the dictionary. Thesaurus uh, offers you uh, the help of a grammar coach when you type it in. Uh, until recently, Microsoft Word underlined it as a spelling mistake. Nevertheless, um, you see the word everywhere, and there's even in, you know, in, in British institutional infrastructure, you have directors of placemaking, chief placemaking, officers, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et so it's even part of the official nomenclature uh, of the English civil service without the meaning of the word really clear. And I have a sort of national theory that maybe that's precisely the point of the word. Hmm. Since its meaning is unclear, everybody can imagine what it is in his mind, use the same words, and the differences never come to surface. Uh, it's almost a democratising element, isn't it? I mean, there, there is no possibility of expertise in this area, so everybody, everybody has an equal say. Yeah, well, it's like the existence of God. I mean, his existence or uh, its, its existence can't be questioned. Nevertheless, we all experience it in private. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wonder, though, how much of this uh, and these systems of often, you know, bureau, bureaucratic obstification or jargonisation around these these concepts. I mean, how much is this? Is this the symptom? Uh, and, and if that is, if they are symptomatic, what what is the the underlying disorder? Well, I think it's it's ultimately symptomatic of um, of a system of deferral, infinite deferral, where you know architecture is an incredibly subjective thing, um, and and it will remain so no matter how many words we project onto it. But let's say if there is a tender um, or there is an architectural competition and people have to evaluate it, they are being held accountable for their choices. You know, why do we give planning permission to one thing and not to the other, et cetera, et cetera. And there, you know, the words in combination with a measurement system come in very, very, very handy because it allows those who evaluate architecture to answer for their choices. Or at least it creates the aura that, that they have made 
objective choices, you know, about something uh, around which objective choices are very, very hard to argue otherwise, if they even exist, you know what I mean? And I think that is that is what we are seeing. I mean, if I, if you used to do architectural competition, you had juries and, and sometimes some very knowledgeable, strong personalities in those juries mm. who stood up for something could even argue it, you know, without using cliches. And you see that less and less and less. You know, the juries are ever more anonymous. There's ever fewer people who, who will argue very strongly for things. And then you get these kind of point systems, these checklists, these tick boxes, which, which then, you know, facilitate decisions. And I don't, I frankly, I don't think it, it produces a very good or original type of architecture. I mean, it has produced buildings to look more and more the same. It, it produces a kind of business as usual, which I, I don't think is very good. I mean, given the issues the world is facing, I think a kind of business as usual is the last thing we need. It, well, it's, it's not sustainable, as, as some might say. I, no. I, I wonder, though, I mean, is, is, is that sort of process more deleterious to the, 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 the profession of architecture than its... It's subservience to the developer, to the, the pressures of capital and, and profit. I think it is. I mean, I think it, 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 it very, very much is. I think, you know, all these terms, in my view, are part of a culture war, are part of a culture war against, you know, creative, progressive values. Uh, they are part of a form of risk management, which, of course, in, in, in any capitalist uh, context is, is key. You know, buildings represent an enormous amount of money altogether. They represent, you know, they're the piggy bank of capital mm. for a very, very large degree. So, you know, you saw in 2008, the financial crisis started as a real estate crisis, you know, a mortgage and loan uh, crisis. And, and you see precisely there what the, the, the kind of pillar you know, real estate and buildings are to the economic system, you know, and the increasing awareness about that, of course, causes the idea that buildings ought to be managed, that real estate ought to be managed and controlled. And I, I think that is very, very much, you know, in capital terms, and I think the language is very, very much part of that process, you know, and that is where the UK Conservative government, you know, in the capitalist world of developers need imperfect think. You, you you write in the book that, that architecture has, to quote you, landed itself on the wrong side of history. If, if, yeah. if, if it were to correct that, um, if it were to reposition itself on the better side of history, I mean, how, how would the profession change? How would its, its practice be altered? Well, I think it needs a serious introspection. Uh, also, and I'm very critical of architects, as well. My first two books were, you know, they took the piss out of architects and the last book, the, the one we're discussing, that takes the piss out of everybody else. But I think there is a serious introspection needed. I mean, I, 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 I looked at a whole series of buildings that won sustainability uh, awards the other day, and I was shocked how similar these buildings were to buildings before such awards existed. You know, I, I think we we partly have a very soft graduatory practice as well. And, you know, climate change is here. I mean, no amount of sustainable buildings is going to avoid climate change. Part of the task of architecture is to adapt 
to climate change. Mm. You know, we, we cannot just expect buildings to reduce emissions and hope the climate crisis will all go away. The climate crisis is here. You know, the global warming is also not going to stop at one and a half degrees, no matter how much politics you know hopes to establish. It's going to get much worse. And I think we need, you know, architecture needs to reinvent itself as a very imaginative realm as a very imaginative realm that finds creative answers even to the, you know, the worst of situations, the worst of, of, of problems. Modern architecture was essentially invented um, to deal with the demographic crisis, you know, to make available homes to the largest number of people at a time of massive population growth. That, and it did that, you know, and it did that with radical concepts. I think we need a kind of futurist manifesto today you know, with radical ideas, how how to deal with the consequences of climate change and not this kind of ostrich policy, you know, that we can behave fairly well and, and, and we can avoid climate change. You, you put all that, that, I think, is what ought to happen. You put all that quite succinctly when you say you, you want architecture to be architecture again. Yeah, so, and I want architecture to be architecture again in, in the tradition of being an imaginative realm, an imaginative realm that produces propositions and proposals in the face very often of crises. I mean, it has that tradition, and it's a tradition we barely visit anymore, and it's a tradition that all these words are also very, very much... Mm. I mean, they're cutting ourselves off from that tradition, and, and that is my, my main objection to that language. In the face of crisis, but, but often with, with, with profound social purpose as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly. I mean, that that was the mission of modern architecture, uh, you know, at, at one point. You know, and, and it, you know, modern architecture is largely concrete. Uh, concrete contributes wonderfully, uh, yes. you know, to weight, to emissions, etc. So it's time for very, very different ideas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, the solution to one crisis is often the beginning of the next. That is also history. I mean, history operates on a principle of escalation, you know, we invent technology to solve problems only to find that that technology creates problem of its own to which we have to invent yet more technology to, to solve. And, and architecture is part of that tradition. And that's part of, I think, what we imagine is human progress. But I mean, one thing is certain for me, I mean, uh, talking and, and using vacuous language is not going to get us anywhere. Yes, I think that that is a point of, of certainty on which we can conclude, and and, and that that battle cry to let architecture be architecture is also a a fine thought to carry forward. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rania de Graaf, architect, writer, partner in the Office for Metropolitan Architecture, and his latest book we were just discussing, Architect Verb: The New Language of Building. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.